0: Chorowitz is an American writer uh, on occult and esoteric themes. He lives in New York. He's also an editor and a public speaker. And um, he agreed to talk a little bit with me about his approach to occultism and a little bit about his new book, The Miracle Club. This was like a wide-range conversation about... A lot of very fascinating topics, not only occultism, but also the genius or the diamond um, spiritual virtue signaling and overall a great enriching conversation, I was very happy to had the chance to talk to Mitch I hope you will enjoy this conversation as well, uh, this is Lateral conversations, my name is Thomas mark and good luck with everything Mitch, Thank you Thanks. very much a pleasure for joining. I mean, with um, in this podcast, I I really was looking forward to it because good, you know I, I I've read a bit little bit about you. You're um you're an author. You've published I I don't know four books, three books, how many?
1: I lose count. But about four.
0: <laughs> right, right. And four. the last one, the Miracle Club, and then yep. one um, on Occult America, I guess. That's
1: right. That was my first. Yeah. You
0: know. Yeah, but you're also a publisher, so or, or oh, you, well, you I, I, I
1: have been, but not currently. Not currently. Right, right. now time i'm dedicated to speaking
0: and writing right right and you have a um interest in the occult so oh, of course very so, much so th- these are things well well i'm i'm a publisher i'm a writer and uh, uh-huh. i also have like a like a interest in in these kinds of topics so so that's the reason i want to delve into those topics yeah yeah with So, would, but great. but would you how, how would you describe your your general approach to occultism and, and those kinds of phenomena and approaches to the world?
1: Well, I've always classified myself as a believing historian and I have been a participant in the movements that I have researched and I felt it was time, particularly uh, in terms of the, this current book, The Miracle Club, to write from a more directly practical perspective and I wanted very much actually to explore and share with readers and others uh, some of the techniques and methods that I participated in. So I I suppose you could say I write, I've always written from a perspective of critical sympathy, but that's largely uh, been evident in my writing as a journalist and a historian. And this is the first time that I've written very explicitly as a practical philosopher. And it's been very gratifying because I, I have continued this kind of balancing act, as it were, of functioning in both worlds. I'm part of the academic culture. I I have an academic appointment. I speak at universities frequently. I write for the mainstream. As a philosopher
0: or as a historian?
1: Both. both. I speak as a philosopher and a historian at museums, on campuses, schools. I write for the mainstream press. I have an article coming out in the Washington Post this week critiquing the gratitude movement. And I also participate in all these things as a seeker. And I'm very much part of the New Age culture as well. And to be frank, I'm proud of that. Uh, I'm proud that I've been able to straddle those lines between the academic, the mainstream, and the New Age. It's very important to me to be able to do that because I don't feel that anybody should either check their intellect or their integrity at the door when they're trying to communicate something to an audience or a constituency. I I never hide my beliefs. And that's been a great step forward uh, for me in in more and more explicit ways in in recent years. Uh, I make a practice of always trying to be very, very plain about what my belief system is whether I'm speaking on a campus setting, whether I'm speaking uh, through an article in a mainstream newspaper, or whether I'm speaking in a conversation like ours. Right. And, uh, again, you know, I, I feel that um, I don't like the idea <clears throat> that any sector of our society should have some sort of fee of entry that precludes belief. I think you can hold belief and still be critical. You can be sympathetic toward a point of view and still be very capable of pointing up the problems with that point of view. In fact, probably... You're talking
0: now about esotericism and occultism. Yes. Yes.
1: Esotericism, religion. I would say the person who functions within those worlds, whether it be mainstream or alternative spirituality, the critical thinking person who functions within those worlds is often far more capable of critiquing those worlds in a meaningful way than somebody who is just a bypasser and acting as a social critic. I can't tell you the number of people I've encountered who criticize different aspects of American New Age culture, for example, whether it be The Secret or Oprah Winfrey. They've never read or seen The Secret. They've never watched five minutes of Oprah Winfrey. And they get away with it because their readers haven't either. And I think all these things need to be held to a greater standard. And listen, you know... know,
0: but you know what, um, just, just to interrupt you there, because like when I, when I started to read your book about the Miracle Club, it was in the same vein as those those um, movements, but it was way more critical, you know, yes. way more pragmatic. Yes. So that, yes. for example, is a secret. And that's what, what I found like kind of refreshing. Yes. You know,
1: like, so. And, and, and I, you know, the same goes true. And I appreciate that. Thank you. That's a sensitive read and I appreciate it. Um, The same holds true for mainstream religious movements in American life. Very often, the most meaningful critics of those movements come from within the movements themselves. If we hear them, if we hear them within the United States, we have a very large, very politically powerful evangelical Christian movement. And yet it's not monolithic. There are people within those movements, younger and older, who are also while they may be dedicated Christians, are deeply critical of the movements themselves. They may not be in the majority. In fact, I would say they're almost certainly not in the majority, but they are there. And if one takes the time to find them, exchange with them, discuss things with them, you'll find that they have very strongly held reformist perspectives on their own movements, deeply critical views of their own movements, and it's so much more fruitful to have that discussion with somebody who's actually a participant, who, who actually knows what's going on. Because frankly, here in America, many political commentators, not all, but many, haven't the first idea what's happening within evangelical or prosperity-
0: So what's, what, what is going on? What is happening?
1: They're struggling for a sense of their own ethics, a sense of their own soul. The majority of those movements are quite conservative and support Trump. There's no mincing words about that. That's a fact. But there is a very active, deeply intelligent minority within those movements, not always younger, but often younger. And they're ethically serious, and they're deeply troubled by the way in which their faith movements are supporting Trump. And it's, which doesn't mean that they're liberal. They are not. But they, they recognize the hypocrisy of, of the outward-facing political position that their own congregations are taking, and they reject it, and they reject it. And it, it's so fruitful and so helpful to hear from people who are struggling to reform their movements rather than from those who would just uh, caricature those movements
0: right is there is there now, um, now a, a, a relationship between your quasi spiritual occult religious views and your stance to um, political aspects of life like well, like how, where is is there a connection if if so how how would you describe it
1: in america to a very great extent, the occult has always been bound up with radical politics and with radical political reform, although that's not always true. There's a right wing to the new age. That's been there. That's always going to be there. I have friends within that world, but that is not my world. My occult, views, <coughs> my, my esoteric views tend to, they tend to run in the direction of political reform and political radicalism because I believe that people should be able to engage in a definition of self without the majority's consent. So whether you're transgender or whether you're a practitioner of some form of occultism, I want to see the individual completely free to the greatest extent possible to pursue his or her sense of self. So that informs my politics as well.
0: Sure. So how would you define occultism now?
1: Occultism now, I think as always is the belief in the existence of an unseen dimension of life, and the forces of this unseen dimension can be felt on us and through us. You could apply that same definition to many of our religions. However, the key difference is occultism occurs outside of any dogma, specific doctrine, liturgy, practice, congregation. It's always been outside the church walls, so to speak. You could find correspondences between occultism and Catholicism. I find them all the time. But within Catholicism, you also find a very strict set of parameters that defines what is and isn't sacred activity versus malevolent activity. I tear down those parameters. I don't believe in those parameters, although I do believe in what many people are doing within the Catholic Church. I just can't have my search limited by that. I don't believe in definitions of good and evil as we bring them to the occult. I don't believe in definitions of attachment and non-attachment. I don't uh, make distinctions any longer between ego and essence. The search is its own vast mission that can't be restricted to a certain map or matrix grid. The search and for what exactly? The search for non-physical existence, the search right. for a form of existence that goes beyond the physical. That's what I mean when I say spiritual.
0: Right. So, I mean, like in, in, in Germany, I know this. there's a um, rejuvenation of the occult idea, and even in academic cycles, it's it's okay now to write dissertations about this, how Kandinsky, for example, was influenced yes. by, by occultism and stuff like that. So there's not like the, uh, um, how would you say that in English, like the... Um, bad child of, of, in the family, you know, you can, you can integrate it. You can talk about this. So, but there's more to that than just the, the looking for the extra material.
1: Yes. Yes. You're raising so many good issues. First of all, you mentioned that there's something of an occult revival going on in Germany. And I would say that the corresponding events are not occurring in the United States. This is often something I speak with journalists about. Every time a journalist is writing a story on an occult topic, and this is especially pertinent since the Halloween season just ended, they always start here in America from the premise that there's an occult revival happening. Uh, You would think that there's never a period of time in America where there's not an occult revival happening by reading the press. And I think it's an evergreen on the American scene. I think it's an evergreen. I was recently speaking with a journalist from the magazine, the Atlantic, who was writing a piece about an upsurge of church sanctioned exorcisms going on here in the U S and he's absolutely correct. That is happening. And his thesis and the thesis of some of the other people he spoke to was that there's an increase in exorcisms because there's a decrease in the hold that mainstream religion has upon the populace. Right. And so, we're all going around apparently messing around in graveyards and with Ouija boards and getting possessed. And and then we have to bring in the exorcist. I mean, that's essentially the thesis that's being promulgated when you tie an upsurge of occult activity into an upsurge of exorcisms. In fact, I think there are separate and distinct reasons why there's an upsurge in exorcisms, not the least of which because it's a continued rollback against the reforms of Vatican II in the Church, where more and more mysticism is being brought into church practice, even under a relatively liberal Pope. And in the church, mysticism often looks like exorcisms or looks like saint veneration. It doesn't take the same forms necessarily that it does outside the church. And I think that actually church life in America, it's not always easy to track because sometimes people might leave one church and joined another without advertising it, without making it clear. People also have and juggle many different religious commitments. You could meet someone here in America who's a member of a mainstream church and this person would never refer to him or herself as being new age or a cult or anything like that. But they're also interested in astrology or they're interested right. in some sort of spiritual self-help. So I think all, all these different movements have always been active in America and Yes, there are occasionally times where there's a genuine spike, but very often they're an evergreen on the American scene. And the other part of your question is, you know, clearly I'm looking for something more than the extra physical, and you're absolutely correct. Otherwise I would just be an ESP researcher. Right. I, I'm, I, and, and, I, and I say this very bluntly, and, I, and I, 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 this, this often rubs people the wrong way when I say this, and I would ask people to listen to it without prejudice. It's a search for power. It's a search for power deriving from an unseen dimension of life. My wish is to extend my sense of agency, creativity, artistry into sure. the world in an ethical way, in an sure. ethical way. And I, I employ the spiritual or the occult as part of that search. I think anyone who doesn't acknowledge that is, is perhaps hiding from themselves.
0: Right. There are so many things. Um, I, I will try to unpack that because you know the uh, the sense that I got from, from you and from your book is that it's that it's like kind of an informed occultism. It's not pre-rational or um, mystic thing where you you know I, I I don't have the feeling that you are focusing on exorcism or on on, on spirits or thing. Yes, occultism is, as far as I understand, it's the search for that which is not yet seen. Maybe mm-hmm. in the domain of the psyche itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yes. so, so that is a is a technique which developed over the last couple of hundred years in relationship to alchemy and stuff like that, positive thought, hermeticism, mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, but but it's also not not this postmodern, wishy washy. I don't know how you, how you say that. Right. Like, with the secret, and and we just have to wish for something. So right. you're very clear in your book The Miracle Club that you have to work hard for your um ideas. And yes. so so yes. That, that is something like a postmodern esoteric new age hippie would never do.
1: Right, right.
0: <laughs> so so and this this is what what yeah. I mean with, with, with an informed occultism. So so and and you know of course it is about power because you know you, you have to find something in yourself, bring it to the world and create your work, but it's not only by wishful thinking, but by by, by actual work. So do I get that right?
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I feel very strongly that the physical and the extra physical go hand in hand, and it's impossible to assemble a project without both of them functioning together. I tell a story in the book about an ESP researcher who's a close friend, Dean Radin.
0: Yeah, I made an interview with him.
1: Ah, yes, that makes perfect sense. And Dean told me a fascinating story that, and I recount this in the book, that he had just concluded a study in precognition. He had amassed tremendous amounts of neurological data, and he determined that there was a certain computer language that he needed to use a certain program in order to organize all of this data. And he needed help he didn't have time to learn the program the task of inputting this data was complex and he could not do it by himself and so he began to walk around thinking he needed to hire somebody or he needed to get a graduate student to help him and he needed a graduate student who had the appropriate background in the neurosciences and that's complicated because Many people in mainstream academia do not want to get mixed up with psychical research. It will harm their reputation. And maybe he could get a grant, he was thinking, that would help him hire such a person. And his assistant said to him, you need to stop thinking of how to get where you want to go, and you need to start thinking about precisely what the end point is, where you want to be. Don't think about a grant or a graduate student. What's the very thing that you want? And Dean said, the very thing that I want Is a qualified person to help me with this program and this data. That's what I want. End of story. He got very, very clear about that. Within a period of days, he was visited by a neuroscientist from the University of Toulouse in France who had heard about his research, wanted a tour of his lab, and volunteered to help him with this experiment. And it turned out, it turned out dead to rights, that this visiting professor, this visiting neuroscientist who wanted to assist Dean, for free was the person who wrote the computer program that Dean needed to use in order to organize his data. I know this story to be absolutely true and it's absolutely fascinating. And Dean said that he's had several such synchronicities occur in his career when he's gotten very clear about what he wanted. So I tell that story in the book and it's a valuable story, but the thing I want to remind the readers is Dean as a scientist has also put in unbelievable amounts of time and effort and sweat equity into his work. He has spent untold numbers of hours writing grant proposals, conducting research in settings that are very rigorously designed and and very time intensive. And the reader of this story should never fool him or herself into thinking, oh, well, good, then I just need to get clear on what I want. Yes, you do need to get clear on what you want, but Hand in hand with that, you must invest a tremendous amount of intelligent effort. And if you don't have the training to invest that effort, you must determine whether you can get the training and apply yourself in the direction of what you want. One should never look at Dean's story and say that it's just a story about cognition and focus and knowing what you want. Yes, it is that. It is that. And he did get what he wanted. But he had put in just hours of labor. Uh, under very rigorous conditions, and one should never forget that. The two must work together.
0: Right. Nice. So, I wonder, this kind of will, this kind of volition that you're talking about. Yeah. I I think it's a way of finding what you want, but also creating what you want. It's like there's, there's this famous saying from Arthur Schopenhauer that you cannot want what you want. I, I I don't know yes. if, if you know it's like this
1: there, <laughs> I don't know that saying I, I quote Schopenhauer a lot I don't know that one though that's very interesting you cannot want what you want interesting is su- I think that, it's
0: some, something like that yeah and,
1: uh, hmm? that's interesting is he suggesting that that, 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 that what we actually want is more elusive, that, that reality hides from us in a certain way, and it's only by applying ourselves to a task that we refine. Well, well
0: his conception is that that the only true thing in the universe is the will, and that every other thing is, is an illusion. So oh, wonderful. The will, oh, wonderful. Like, the, like the idea from Ken Wilber, like this eros, like this yes. brings yes. forth the world, and yeah. that we can align ourselves to that internal and maybe even external force yes yes but but we cannot want what we want it's like mm-hmm. it's like and, and he plays with this concept of of a diamond uh-huh. of, of this um, you know what i'm talking about this yes, Roman yes. conception so and this is something which is very occult also because normally if you, if you, if we go about our life that is that is such a deep psych- psychological concept that we normally don't have like a very good conception or like a contact to this kind of Part of ourselves, so. Yes,
1: it's beautifully put. And in fact, what Schopenhauer was saying and what Ken Wilber is saying comports with some of what uh, Nietzsche wrote, with some of what Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote, and even in a way with some of what the idealist philosophers wrote. I think Nietzsche, Emerson, Schopenhauer, the idealists, William Blake, the Romantics they all had this shared sensibility that there was some kind of a sacred, creative will that was at the back of all that is, that was a first principle, and that humanity itself could not be entirely separated from that that will. And we receive hints of that and whispers of that in our religious literature, whether it's the hermetic dictum, as above, so below, or whether it's the book of Genesis telling us that the individual is crafted in the image of the creator. This notion haunted all of these writers, haunted them. And it's amazing when you look at what a wide variety of people it really was. Schopenhauer, Blake, the Romantics, Emerson, Nietzsche,
0: all these, the psychologists you know this concept psych- of the diamond you find it's
1: yes, like uh you find it in adler you no. find it in certainly well you find it in Jung. certainly in all the transpersonal psychology
0: james hillman right james
1: hillman william james so I, I i'll submit that they couldn't all have been wrong yeah, yeah, right they all have just been wrong go <laughs> you know, across different generations and possessed of different concerns they had to be correct and New thought, in a way, at its best, is a popular expression of this philosophy. New thought is a popular expression of everything that these wonderful thinkers and seekers were trying to get their arms around. And they all believed, as did some of their ancient forebears, of course, that this, this will is a metaphor behind everything. It's a first principle. And that we, as thinking creative beings... Housed in these temporary forms cannot be entirely separate from this will that's at the back of our own presumed right. creation. And I think new thought and certainly my search, my search, is all about trying to find ways of bringing myself and my wishes into some sort of commonality, comport right. with that will. I believe that's true. I really do believe, and intellectually and in my heart, that all these thinkers we 've just mentioned traveling along this same scent trail. They weren't right. wrong. They weren't wrong. No,
0: no, because um, as far as I understand, this specific concept, you find it also in basically uh-huh. in every re- religion. You know, yes. in Christianity, you find it even in Zoroastrianism and, and Hinduism. Yes. It's like the, the idea of the, basically of the holy guardian angel, which like, it's, it's, it's like a deep, like, or the genius for that mm-hmm. matter, like the, mm-hmm. the um, entity between, Whatever there is, and your ego, and, yes. and trying to protect you in a way, yes. on your way, but aligns yep. you to be uh, to act harmoniously in in the world, and to act out what it wants. In a way, yes. but it's it's nothing shallow. And you know, always when I bring up this topic, the, the people say, "Well, I I know I um, I am in contact with my genius on my time." I said, "Well, no, I do, <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, you, you need like at least twenty years to to, yes. to have like a specific to, like notion and specific oh. concept of that, and the, the ability to get in contact with that." Yes, you know? and and what 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 I want to add is like then w- w- when you are in contact with this kind of aspect of your consciousness, say, or your psyche, or whatever it is, then yes. ma- magical things happen. And yes. this is not yes. explainable why they happen, but correct. it's, it's, it's some weird things happening. Beautifully
1: put. Beautifully, beautifully put. And what's so interesting is that the individual may not know, and it almost necessarily will not know precisely what that, intersection will look like and will feel like. And I say this because at this point in my personal search, I want to put this very gently. I have come to a place and I may, this may change. We may talk 10 years from now and I'll say, oh no, I had it all wrong. But right now in the here and now, I have come to a place where my search has brought me to a place where I am very driven in the world as it is, in the material world. I am driven to write my books, to build my audience, to hopefully profit off of my books in my audience. I have children whose education needs to be paid for, and so on. I have very concrete needs, and I can be very plain and clear about them. And my wish is to do so with integrity, as we were talking about at the top of the hour, I will not hide or change or alter for the sake of diplomacy or commerce, what any of my beliefs are, but I have come to a place that many people on the spiritual path would feel is ego driven or is materialist or is attached or is identified. And that's why I say I throw out all of those terms because my needs and the place where I feel greatly at home in the world and in harmony with a sense of uh, purpose and and of of a of a smaller will being attached if you will to a higher will or as above so below however one wants to devise it the place where i feel like i'm functioning within that equation is a place of performing in the world as it is and there are people who hear that and they say oh you know, poor Horowitz. He's, he's got it all upside down. He's gotten confused. He's been taken by Satan. He's on the left-hand path. I've heard it all, believe me. And, (laughs) and and I've searched everywhere and I've searched everywhere. And right now at this point in my search, the place that I've come to is a place of performance that may change in 10 years. It may change because my needs change or it may change because I'm wrong, but that's where I've come to. So we must never try to predict precisely what it'll feel like when we experience that intersection. If there is even such an intersection, I believe there is, but we'll never know. It may take people in directions that they just never could have suspected. I, 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 I felt like I was being torn in two for many years. I really right. felt like I was being I torn in two because I thought, Oh, you know, the search is supposed to make you more humble, not more pursuant of attention
0: i I, well, I get exactly what what you mean i 've meditated for over twenty years. I still do that, mm-hmm. but the more I am in contact with with what 's in me, the more I am driven to act and or as you say perform in in, in the world and i i don 't necessarily don 't see like a contradiction in that because for me like any any spiritual attainment is only provable by will and by I what you can. It's more. not it's not it's not the, the postmodern new age notion that you live in a zanga or a community and everything is peachy. And you know I, I think spiritual attainment has something to do with acting in the world. And for me, it's like again to stress Ken Wilber. This is like an, uh, like a second tier consciousness where. We have to deal with the problems at hand. For example, we can't yes. we can't just live in a, in a zanga anymore. That doesn't work anymore. Yes, That's I agree. It. So, and and for me, that isn't necessarily a contradiction. It's like a, a, the proof of of and, and 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 those people that are my friends who act in that matter. Those are highly um, highly functioning performative individualists, so to speak. But yes, who are, Create in their kind of way. Yes, um, it's it's kind of it's kind of nice.
1: Yeah, it's very interesting. Now, for some people, a more ascetic way of life may prove to be deeply authentic. Uh, for George Fox, the founder of uh, the Quakers, or for uh, Henry David Thoreau, although there's some revisionist history being written about Thoreau, the idea of of a paring down of life to its essentials in such a way that reflects a kind of asceticism, a humility, a a sense of perennial prayer, not a seeking out in the world. I don't necessarily see a contradiction among any of these things, but if another individual's path would look differently from the outside than my path would look, I'd be the first to celebrate that. I'm not suggesting that someone else's endpoint should resemble my endpoint right i'm just suggesting that we have to leave people alone to the extent that they can find themselves and it's so interesting it's 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 forever interesting to me how religions form even people who see themselves as being very radically ruptured with any kind of organized faith or organized religion i've literally had people quite recently at talks or lectures where I might start to speak about my uh, lack of interest nowadays in critiquing questions of attachment, questions of identification, which for me are not live questions today. I think those are false trails, at least for me. And people will come up to me sometimes and very insistently tell me, without the slightest sense of irony, you must talk more about non-attachment. You must have a Uh, a fuller understanding of non-identification. And, you know, they're saying this to me sometimes in very assertive ways without the slightest sense of irony. It's human nature. We want to impose ourselves on other people. Telling other people what to do, I think, is probably uh, the greatest fissure in in human nature, probably the cause of the most violence that wish to tell other people what to do. You know, it was wonderful. Percy Shelley wrote a play called Cain, which is not widely read or performed today. And in Cain, he depicted the brother Abel, the so-called good brother, as one who kept trying to impose his own piety on his brother Cain, who kept trying to tell his own brother Cain what to do. And Cain lashed out at him and committed this act of fratricide without intending to. He didn't mean to commit murder. He didn't mean to commit violence. But his brother, in Shelley's retelling, was also being violent because he was, he was, continually trying to remake Cain in his own image, and I found that a very poignant telling. And we must always just be aware of that. Just be aware of that. To what right. extent am I trying to remake somebody in my own image?
0: Right. Um, I'm, 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 um, wh- while you were talking, I, I I had an idea. I don't know how, if I if I can express it, probably. But you certainly have followed the news on the intellectual dark web and social justice warriors and and all those those kind mm-hmm. of things and and this virtual signaling this idea of virtual signaling and i wonder yeah. if if you can apply if one can apply this concept to to spiritual acting because oh yes a couple of sentences before you talked about humility you know and but this is like done in a social context you know i'm i'm non-attached this is like some kind of but, you know because yes and because i i would presume that if you are in, in contact with those higher force we are talking about you are naturally um have a humility against um or for this kind of force and you are obviously not not attached to that what you don't want you know it's, yes. but it's kind of in, in in internalization and not a virtual signaling yes you know and, and
1: it's, it's it's beautifully put. You know, I think so much depends upon what the intention is behind it. What's the intention behind it? The other night I was in Chicago and I was having dinner at the house of a friend of mine. And he was very drunk. And as such, he was speaking very bluntly to me. And he said to me, you know, I've been listening to your, your talks and your lectures and I've been listening to the conclusions you come to. And you, you don't quite have it. You're not quite there yet. There's something... You're not quite there yet. And I wasn't offended by what he said because I knew it was coming from the heart. I knew he was speaking as a person who felt he wasn't quite there yet. And none of us may ever get there. there. There, It may not be possible to get there. You know, he could sense that I was looking for some sort of a unifying perspective or philosophy and that I had, I had not arrived. And I was touched rather than offended by what he said because I thought, first of all, it's true. And second of all, it was coming from someone who himself was embarked on a very serious search. And, and I think he would be the first to say the same of himself, that he, he hadn't quite found it. He hadn't quite found it. And he was very drunk, so he was speaking to me in a very blunt <laughs> way. But I didn't mind. In fact, I was touched by it because I felt it was somebody who was speaking to me as a colleague, as a partner. Whereas, if that same person hadn 't engaged in the search, it would have been a very different kind of exchange, and I would have come away with a very different impression um, so it it depends upon the the intention and I think what you 're sensing very rightly is that when people are engaged in virtue signaling either in politics or in spirituality, very often they 're just trying to tell other people what to do they 're just a- asserting themselves in some very violating way that I don't want any part of, you know, I'm not telling them what to do. They don't need to intrude on my Twitter page. You know, (laughs) just leave me alone. And so there was a great spiritual teacher who died in 1992 named Vernon Howard. He was an American. And I loved him very, very dearly. And one night, Vernon had this, I never knew him personally, but I speak about him personally because I feel so intimately attached to his ideas. Vernon had this beautiful way of delivering an enormous message through a very plain sentence. And one night, this is on recording, he erupted at a room full of students, and he said to them, what I'm really trying to say to you is, why don't you all just leave people alone? They've got problems of their own. They don't need your jokes or your smart remarks. And I thought that phrase, leave people alone, One could live with that for a whole lifetime. You know, I was saying earlier that it might be that the great break in human nature is this urge to keep telling other people what to do. And when I read about violence, like let's say a terrorist attack somewhere or something like that, I think to myself, the people who committed the violence, the people who committed the violence, they had that option. They had that option of just leaving other people alone. Go Mm -hmm. off and pursue your ever- whatever personal conception it is that you have of how life should be lived. And I'll be the first one to congratulate you on your search, but they're incapable of doing that or unwilling to do that. And leaving people alone never dawns on them, never occurs to them as an option. I was reading about horrible, horrible story. There was a group of terrorists who had committed a mass act of violence at a university. Gosh, forgive me. I can't remember where it was in, I think it was in Central Africa, and it was just terrible. And I was saying to a friend of mine over lunch, did it dawn on any of these terrorists that they just could have left people alone? Right. And the friend I was with sort of laughed, and I said, no, you know, I'm, I'm not being glib. I'm really, truly being serious. Maybe there was someone among them, and that did occur to him, and he broke off or something. But what a radical question it is to ask, you know, could I just leave people alone in right. this situation? And uh, that's one of the things I just truly loved about about Vernon. He could say something so plain, and yet it could haunt you.
0: Yeah, I, I, what I'm always thinking about are magical words, you know? Yes. that That what you're saying is a magical word. You know, it's mm-hmm. a sentence, of course, but, you know, these people are not. But, you know, there, there are cliches. So, like... Um, if life gives you lemons, make lemonade. So that everybody <laughs> yeah. knows that. And right, maybe but not so bad. Not so that's, bad. That's, that's also a magical word. Yes. But it's like yes. not that. Not, not not potential for me. A, a very yeah. powerful magic word is yes. that of yes. those um, thalamites. Like do what you will. Yes. Because yes. that is like a very potent um, magical word, by which obviously does not mean do whatever you want. But Correct. It, but it. But right. it also. But it again. Refers to some higher form of principle, you know. That it, it's like if if you if you apply yourself and align yourself to that kind of principle and to that kind of magical word, you yes, you get where I'm going, right? I do indeed. In right. fact, I
1: take very seriously the idea of magical words or very simple expressions because we can only understand the depth of these things by attempting to apply them. And when we attempt to apply them, we will fail like the golden rule. Right. If you attempt to apply the golden rule for one hour, chances are overwhelming that you'll fail. And if you're willing to sustain that failure, it will put you in front of a tremendous question about human nature. It could change your entire life. So I take very seriously these expressions and, and, and these, these, these simple ideas because they, they're they're simple or they seem they seem simplistic only in the absence of application. When one implies applies them if one applies them, if one applies them, and very, very few people will ever even make the attempt, they put you in front of enormous conflicts and questions. But right. you only know that when you attempt their application. And right. most people will never do that.
0: Yeah, or it's the other way around, that and that is also my personal experience, that in 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 a Um, period of crisis you know when you know when nothing is happening and and um, you're looking for those words you know you're looking for those to to change yourself in a way and to open yourself up to to the world again and to to, to this higher force that it's also the case that at least for me that i'm some sometimes looking for um those kind of Magical spinners, the yes, which, yes. which can, which by which I can change the course of my life.
1: Yes, yes, it's fascinating. It's fascinating, and they are there. We, they have been given to us. They're there in the Beatitudes. They're mm. there in the Bhagavad Gita. They're there in the Tao Te Ching. They're there in the Meditations of Marcus Aurelius. But especially
0: there, yes. Mm.
1: Yes, <laughs> and we don't apply them. We read them, and while we're sitting there, we underline them with great dedication and say, "Yes, yes, how perfect, how wonderful!" But then we want ice cream, <laughs> you know. It all goes up the So it's all in the attempt
0: to apply. Yeah. yeah, but but sometimes then then it appears. Then this this word appears, and and, yes. and after this this period of crisis, and then it and maybe it's a, <laughs> the condensation of the crisis. I don't know what it, what exactly is it, but 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 you know, it's like it's 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 a it's a linguistic embodiment of the crisis that you went through something like yes that. yes it's <laughs> it's
1: it's it, and these things are perennial they're absolutely perennial and they're arresting symbols are the same way the the pentagram or the crucifix or the star of david or the sure. all-seeing eye or the pyramid they they have those same qualities we're absolutely certain and we're we're right, I think. We're we're certain that these symbols are drawing us in the direction of something that's absolutely true. Right. But it's just tremendously difficult trying to trying to get at, trying to arrive at, or 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 even apply the first step in the direction of what that truth may be.
0: So, so would you say that your performative actions in in the world and with the world that those performances in itself are. Also expressions of your occult striving? Yes, because they represent
1: for me a expression of self that I think goes outside of the ordinary, ordered, safe condition that I was raised in, educated in, and received peer rewards for. They are a different form of behavior than that which I knew for the first several decades of my life, in which I felt very lost, in which I felt very lost. I've reconnected today, in the here and now, with things that I felt were appropriate to my existence when I was extremely young and and failed to pursue. Coming back to that feels like it's a connection with something, call it, call it will, call it Mind, call it uh, perspective, but something that that was present and that was lost, and certainly my study of the occult helped bring me to that.
0: Okay, but but can you can you elaborate on that? How, what do you what do you perceive? What what do you do when you perform? Like what like like how how does the search for the occult or for that which is occult how yes. does it manifest while you're doing like a, a lecture, for example?
1: Well, the lecture is, is probably the manifestation itself, although I, I tend not to use the word manifestation. I more use the word selection. But I think I came to realize in my study of the occult, and especially in the tension that existed, as I felt I was pulled in between, let's say, a more Judeo-Christian philosophy, especially a more Christian philosophy of uh, humility meekness, the surrendering of one's will, all of which I honor, all of which I validate. And on the other hand, I was pulled toward an occult philosophy of the assertion of one's will. I came to feel that for me, the more authentic way of living and the greater truth lied with the assertion of one's will. And that for me became almost a license to dispense with the conflicts that I was feeling, the hesitancy that I was feeling, any degree or aspect to which I was restraining myself or holding myself back. I honor Christianity. I I feel Christianity has brought so many vital, vital truths to the world, but that is not my path. The surrendering of will, humility, meekness as traditionally defined are not my path. The assertion of will, the assertion of my uh, wishes, generativity, productivity self in this world for as long as we're in these temporary forms that to me is a much greater connection with, with what is authentic
0: right i mean this is like a huge lineage uh, where where we're moving and it's not only schopenhauer it's like it's 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 yes. uh, from from his speech patterns i would even suspect that that Wilbur himself is like a how would, we, how would you say it, a, a voluntarist no like a like like belonging to that lineage of Focusing more on will and and yes. acting yes. In, in in the world, yes. Heidegger, uh, yes, world. yes, Nietzsche,
1: you know, yeah, yeah. Yes. I mean, Nietzsche never laid out his philosophy in any kind of a specific bullet-pointed, numbered list. You know, he was always there was always the suggestion, um, there was always the suggestion that one had to throw off old forms and expectations and throw oneself into comport with that which is natural. And, you know, he never formed a philosophy that one could precisely connect together the numbers of. I always tell people in America, people don't like to be called self-help writers because they think it's gauche. Mm
0: -hmm. And I always
1: tell people, if you use bullet points, you're a self-help writer. Nietzsche and Schopenhauer did not use bullet points. you You know, I use bullet points. I am a self-help writer. (laughs) I am not them. Um, You know, they, they, they left it to us. They left it to us the reader and the seeker to devise some sort of philosophy from this, you know, uh, or a program, a program, they devised a philosophy Uh, and I'm not saying they encouraged the program, but that's what we're left with. We, we, they didn't give us a program. We have to shape it within our own lives. And it's interesting, you know, You look at figures, great American figures like um, Ralph Waldo Emerson and William James. Now, this is interesting. Both these men are my intellectual heroes. And both these men, at later points in their lives, attempted to write essays that were more programmatic. And although these essays have brilliance in them, they are their weakest essays. For Emerson, it was the essay Fate, in which he's very explicit, and for William James, it was the essays, uh, the gospel of relaxation, the gospel of relaxation and the energies of men. These were, these were James's attempts to take his philosophy and render it into a program. Right. And as, as a critic put it in, 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 these essays, these figures get lost in the shallows of explicitness. And you, you, you see, there's a dissent, something in their writing is lost, something in their, their vision is dimmed. And yet, I have to applaud them. I have to applaud them for making the attempt. I make the attempt in the Miracle Club. I, I am writing in the vein of a practical program, a practical philosophy. and it's hard. It's very, very hard, because mm-hmm. the greats, like a Schopenhauer or like a Nietzsche,
0: I think his sister tried to do that. that. I'm sorry. I- I, th- I think his sister tried to do that, like with the yes. last, with the last book, the the Will to Power, which was like assembly of yes. different different uh, aphorisms. And I think she had something like that in mind because I think you're not, correct that, that's not his writing. It's not his. It's not his writing, and it's that's this writing, but it's not his way of doing things. Right, and that's why that book, which is not really a
1: Nietzsche book has become so popular because, well, first of all, people think there are things in there that aren't really in there, but that's typical of of most interpretation of philosophers. But secondly, people think that it's the master key, that, oh, now this is going to be the disclosure that I'm looking for. And I think you're very right. I think that's exactly what she was attempting. And again, I applaud these attempts, but one mustn't lose sight of the fact that these attempts can't really be called total successes. And yet we try, we try because I, I need a program. I need a program. I go through life searching for a program. So I I read these essays realizing that they are lower iterations of the best work of these writers. And I'm engaged in the same thing. I'm trying to devise a program, but I feel that's, that's what I need. So that's, that's, that's one of the places I'm searching.
0: Right. Yeah, I'm. I'm always. i I always personally. I struggle with that because my my own books are like um, abstract, and I am. I try to avoid to to produce this this bullet points. You know, as you as you as you. As you but. Mostly, this is probably the reason why they don 't dread <laughs> you know so it's
1: a trade off it's 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 a trade off you know i mean it, one one can use bullet points and then you know, it's more widely read and it can be done with integrity or uh, one can resist that and that's that's in, that, that's a decision of equal integrity uh, right. and it's it's a trade off
0: so do 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 you have like a um, specific spiritual practice? Um, um, to fall back to and, and, you know, to align yourself or to to get in contact or something like that? Well, it changes a great deal. Um, I, for a long time, I've
1: practiced Transcendental Meditation twice a day. Although, to be frank with you, I haven't been doing that quite recently. I have been, I'm very dedicated to the teaching of Neville Goddard, who is, I think, the greatest, one of the greatest teachers in the mind power tradition. He What's his name? Neville, Neville Goddard.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You mentioned him.
1: Yeah, yeah, uh, there's a chapter about him in the Miracle Club. He was a British Barbadian citizen who traveled to the United States at a young age, spent most of his life here, and he lived and worked in New York and California until his death in 1972. And Neville taught, in essence, a kind of extreme idealism that, your human imagination is God and that everything you see and experience is the product of your own creative imagination. And that anytime God is referenced in scripture, old Testament, new Testament, it's a metaphor for the human imagination. And Neville, while being a beautiful, beautiful idealistic thinker also brought a program and I use his program. He, he was very specific about using mental pictures and ideas And Neville's program is a very deep part of my life. I write about some of his exercises and ideas in the Miracle Club. So that is a spiritual practice that's very central uh, to me. And there are lots of other things that I engage in, exercises that I attempt. Um, I'm always trying to find ways of using methods or techniques or programs to get in touch with the degree to which thought is causative. My contention is that thought is causative. And that's why my search has found me within new thought and related philosophies. And that's my practice today in the right. here and now. That's yeah. my practice.
0: Yeah. Would you, I, I don't know if you work with a model like that, but would, would you say that your way of approaching occultism um, is like, like an integral or post-postmodern way to do that? Or is it nothing you would, you would describe that way?
1: Well, I, I guess I see it more as syncretic. You know, I, I, I believe I bring in all kinds of different ideas. Anything, I'm interested in new thought. I'm interested in chaos magic. I'm interested in ceremonial magic. I'm interested in ESP research. I'm interested in the writings of, of all figures, modern and ancient, who dealt in any of these areas. Now even
0: ritual magic, like, like from... Yes, yes, yes. Like um, from the golden dawn and stuff like that.
1: Yes, although I don't really have exactly the taste that they did for the programmatic. You know, mm-hmm. I I it's funny. I grew up in a Jewish household as a kid and I had an Orthodox bar mitzvah. And boy, if you want to get into ceremonial magic, it's <laughs> because when you're really into the Orthodox world, their world is a very magical world and so it's a very different world a uh, very vastly different world from the secular world and even a different world from the world of uh, so-called mainstream Judaism. You know, if, if you came to visit me here in New York, I could take you to an Orthodox Jewish book emporium in Brooklyn, and you would feel as if you had stepped into Israel Regardi's wildest <laughs> dream. You know, everything. <laughs> There's just magical texts and supplies and accoutrements everywhere. And I ran away from that world as a child. I ran mm. away from that world because it is so based in ritual. It is so based in liturgy, doctrine, dogma, ritual, dietary law, everything imaginable that I found it uh, stifling. And I feel the same, frankly, with the golden dawn sometimes. Mm. Uh, and with Crowley, I, 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 I my tastes run in more anarchic directions. The, the whole idea of figuring out and, and programming a ritual to this razor's edge of perfection with all these different elements involved, I don't have a taste for that. And I personally speaking have not found results from that, although mm-hmm. there are people who have. And I also have people who write to me, this happens all the time, People write to me and say they have experimented with sigil magic, for example, and they've gotten right. absolutely nowhere with it. And I have to admit, the same is true of me. I respect the practice and I care about the practice. I personally have gotten nowhere with it. Right. My work with Neville has gotten me much further, say, than sigil magic. So right. I'm interested in ceremonial that, magic. That would but be
0: I, Austin Osman spare, right?
1: Yes, yes. Right. I resist uh, the formality of it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, but this is quite interesting because it's like diff- it's, it's, it's like different languages. Because you know this this new thought, is, yeah. is, is, is appears more or less at the same time. But there are not very much intersections to to like uh, hermeticism and 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 I don't know what's uh, the yes, stuff? you're very right. But it's now, like it's, but it's but but it's the same domain nonetheless. It's, it's different so approaches to the same domain.
1: Yes. And the truth is, if you look at Thelema and the movement around Crowley, for example, and I, I think I say this in the Miracle Club, that movement aesthetically and intellectually is much, much better developed than New Thought. You will find better intellectual company and certainly greater artistry within the world of Thelema, for example, or right. ceremonial magic or chaos magic than New Thought. It produces better intellects, the, 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 everything about the intellectual and aesthetic qualities of the ceremonial magic culture is superior to new thought hands down and yet my choice my path has been new thought because i believe that new thought gets down to primary principles in a fuller way and right. i think new thought is is closer in its own way to many of the writers we were just talking about and their right. search for true will nietzsche schopenhauer emerson blake you know all these writers had this certainty that there was this will that they wanted to be in alignment with. In fact, Emerson writes about this very explicitly. I really do believe that you find a uh, greater application of that in new thought than you do in ceremonial magic, chaos magic, although those movements are intellectually much better. Where, where,
0: where, whereby, and I, I still, I think it's, it's the same topic, you know, from like different approaches because like, this this primordial force that, that as far as i understand is the 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 main goal but you go all the way around and domesticate your psyche with all those rituals and stuff like that to to you know to overcome that and 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 to get in contact with this kind of kind of force yes. like it's yes. it's a different language it's like some people are musicians other people are Painters, but they're both yes. artists, you know, something they're like
1: that. They're both artists, yes. And that's why, you know, I feel that there's no question in my mind that people within the ceremonial magic world, ritual magic world, they have found things, and they mm. have done things for me. Some people in that world have done rituals on my behalf that have been very helpful to me. So I mm. honor it, I venerate it. But it's not it's not my primary path.
0: Right, right. No, I, I would say for my... my I, I I have nowadays like a, a similar... Um, direction mm-hmm. like like you like like lots of my spiritual practice happens while I act and while I you know try to for example f- try to find the right moment. To have a conversation with you, you know, yes. it's like I putting yes. myself out there, and then I talking to Albert Klump. This is like our mutual Facebook friend, and then he, he yes. like 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 write him. So and this was kind of you know, and it, it instantly works. So and uh, yes, yes. And now and now I'm sitting in, in Parliament. You're sitting in, in in New York, and we're trying to create something from like from an email. You know, it's mm-hmm. like from yes. Some, some, yes. and this is, you know. I, I certainly learned something by this. And yes. This is like this is like a good meditation. Likewise, I feel exactly that way because it's an exchange.
1: It's a real, authentic exchange, and that's very nourishing.
0: Right. So, um, what you 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 work you you have written like the Miracle Club now, and and yes. work as a as a as a lecture. What 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 comes through you like next?
1: That is a wonderful question. I have a number of deadlines that I have to dedicate myself to, but as far as a next book, I'm not sure. I'm thinking about a couple of different possibilities. One possibility is writing another book on new thought and its application, but I would only want to do that if I had something really serious to say. And the other thing I'm thinking about is writing a book about Satanism. And giving a fresh look to Satanism, which I think has, it's not really a tradition. It's almost an attitude, an outlook, a, a private philosophy that's been embraced by certain figures, some of them quite brilliant, all of them misunderstood, and trying to give people permission and approbation to explore the Satanic and the Luciferian in the Western tradition without being caricatured, without being stereotyped without being misrepresented. Of course, it may never be possible not to be misrepresented, but I want to give people permission, as I've given myself permission, to explore the satanic with a fresh understanding. And I've written a number of articles to this effect at the website medium.com, where I'm a contributor, and they've gotten a very, very good response. A small number of people are very angry, but a larger number of people feel very relieved and very joyful that somebody has kind of cracked open the door in the 21st century to explore Satanism without feeling that it has all this artificial misunderstanding attached to it. So that's what I'm thinking about. How, I may come up with something entirely different.
0: How, how would you choose a book topic? Because for me, it's like I, I have a folder and like for a certain period of time, I put all my ideas in there yeah so, and those ideas grow and at some point I feel like I can I can see I can see the end of a specific project and so and this is the project I normally choose then when I can see the whole project it will turn out completely right. different the book itself but the initial momentum is like yeah I can see it through you know yes. so and, and, and how, 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 how is it for you
1: very often something will capture my ideals Like when I wrote *Occult America*, I came to feel that some of the figures I admired in American occultism, like Edgar Cayce and Manly P. Hall, were being misrepresented, and that these people were heroes to me. And I wanted to defend them. So I was filled with a sense of ideals that I wanted to defend these people. And when I wrote my next book, which is called *One Simple Idea*, which is the history of the positive mind movement, I felt that positive thinking had gotten a bad rap. I felt that positive thinking was misunderstood as a kind of simpleton's philosophy of refrigerator magnets and so on. In fact, here's a refrigerator magnet right now. I'm holding up. The listeners won't see it, but you can see it. It says imagine. I intend to put this on my refrigerator. Um, I felt the positive mind movement needed to be chronicled, also needed to be defended philosophically and historically because it's so much deeper than what people expect. And I think what got me into writing The Miracle Club was I came across a, uh, a phrase or expression of Ralph Waldo Emerson, where he called for a philosophy for the people. We needed a philosophy for the people. And there never really had been such a philosophy. He didn't write one, and he wouldn't have claimed to have written one. He just said, this is a task that is unfinished. And I thought, New, new Thought and the Positive Mind Movement is probably the closest thing that we have to that philosophy for the people That Emerson called for, and yet it is stifled by a great deal of childishness, by a lot of sloganeering, by a lot of foolish language or leaps that are made in assumptions without any justification. And I thought, what if I could at least make an effort, at least make an effort in that direction, trying to take this philosophy, this philosophy for the people, and help it to grow up, help it to mature. So if I'm gripped by an ideal, then I'll usually pursue something. So for me, the question is, which topic will kind of pull at my ideals? I'm how very does emotional. It
0: feel <laughs> if an idea grabs you, I'm sorry. Um, how does it feel if an idea idea grabs you?
1: Oh, it, it feels like I want to go charging up a hill, you know, carrying a flag somewhere. I'm very emotional, and I think that I will get keyed into something emotionally, and then I'll follow through intellectually. So if I feel that something needs to be written to defend someone's reputation or to uh, give people permission to do something or to somehow open up the culture in some way that I think it's been unfairly shut down, I'm very oriented toward justice. It must be my Old Testament background. (laughs) And, And I'm very emotional. So if an ideal comes to me, I'll really feel it. You know, it's a very intense... Emotional experience. And then you, I'll start...
0: I'm sorry, you say
1: ideal or ideal? Ideal, ideal. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is very often emotional.
0: Right. Okay. Yeah. Right. So, so if, if, if you have to connect, uh, if you have to, to um, what, what, what was your word? Like, like to defend somebody and to... Yes, to, uh, yes. yes. Okay. That, that, that rocks your boat it, in a way.
1: It, it very much does. You know, it's funny. In the book, One Simple Idea... I wrote about an American evangelist named Oral Roberts, and Oral Roberts was at one time a very famous evangelist here in the U.S., and he took a great deal of criticism because people felt he was an architect of the prosperity gospel, and he was was a phony, he was a con man, and so on. But the truth is, he was a complex individual, and I felt that he hadn't been treated quite fairly. So I wrote about Oral Roberts in One Simple Idea, and I tried to bring a greater sense of depth to his life than I think he's been given credit for. So that kind of thing, I find very arousing. I, uh, it's, 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 it almost always um, serves as the ignition point for my right. wanting to complete a project.
0: Right, and that, and and you you mentioned initially an article which is published like now, like next week about the culture of what was it um, gratitude. Yeah. yes what, what yeah, you, I wanted to ask you like like what do what you mean by that? Oh, well, <clears throat> excuse me here in the
1: u s there have been a lot of very popular books recently on the power of gratitude. the idea is that if you express gratitude, whatever you express gratitude for will multiply in your life, and that you can lift yourself out of depression and difficulties in some regards by cultivating a regular daily practice of gratitude and As is typical, these books become very popular, and then the critics come along and say, oh, this is all just a bunch of nonsense and fairy dust, and here we are back in the secret. And they're both wrong. They're both wrong. Because, of course, there is an intrinsic value to some of what the gratitude movement is describing. And the critics, they have their points, but as I always say about the critics in these situations, they're right, but they're not right enough. They're not right enough. Because they only see what's absurd, and they don't see what's actually applicable and what's actually worthwhile. So I have a piece going in the Washington post, not a very long piece where I just evaluate some of the more popular books in the gratitude movement at the moment, talk about what their flaws are, but talk about also the authenticity that one could find within this. Right. So that's my attempt in this article right. should be out, uh, very close to when, when this uh, discussion is, is posted.
0: Right. Right. What la- la- last question? What do you think of the secret anyhow?
1: I appreciate that question. And uh, my feelings about it are complex because first of all, there's been such a backlash against the secret, at least here in the U S that everyone professes to hate it. And it's almost ridiculous because I don't know, you know, tens of millions of people bought the book and watched the movie. Somebody somewhere must've liked it. And uh, one of the things I find very tiresome within our spiritual culture, particularly within the alternative spiritual culture is that people will piss on the secret, so to speak, as a way of trying to uh, represent their own seriousness. The secret, if you if you hate the secret... The but situation- it's virtue
0: signaling, you mean? Hmm?
1: Yes, it's virtue signaling, exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, and also the critics of the secret, the most vociferous critics, they've never seen it or read it, so they have no idea what's in it anyway. And I've criticized the secret quite a bit myself, but... The movie did come out 10 years ago, and I recently decided to rewatch it with one of my younger kids because I thought maybe there are things I've missed in here. And I watched it, and frankly, I liked it. I thought it had good values. I thought it promulgated some basic ideas. It, it was nowhere near as extreme in its claims as many of its critics assert. I also criticized uh, its maker, Rhonda Byrne. And I I very explicitly criticize her in One Simple Idea, and I stand by that criticism, because Rhonda believes something that I think is false, which is that we all live under one giant mental super law, which she refers to as the law of attraction. And I think we live under many laws and forces, or at the very least, we experience many laws and forces, even if the mind is the ultimate arbiter of reality. And Rhonda will talk about people suffering catastrophes uh, and how those who suffered catastrophes were thinking things that were vibrating on the same level as the catastrophe itself, all of these metaphorical terms I'm somewhat uncomfortable with. And I don't think there's any way of verifying that, you know, when you're on the path, your only sense of validation is your own personal experience. And if you haven't passed through a catastrophe, mm-hmm. a horrible war or, some terrible natural catastrophe that takes many lives. How would you know that? How would you know that? It's just theorizing about what your neighbor is going through. And there are many, many levels on which I'm critical of Rhonda.
0: There, there, there were some, some German writers who did this as well. There was one woman, I, I don't remember her name, but she was a famous um, writer. And, and she uh, said something in the vein of, well, the the, the victims of some tsunami in 2004, I guess, they, they were like responsible by, because of their... Thought patterns. Yeah, vibrations. Thought, and yeah, I, and I, I was wondering, why, that why, why would you argue that way? I mean, the, right, the huff, right. suffering horrendously. and, right. and, you know, and I, I think the
1: why is the wish to have some sort of an airtight philosophy. You know, Rhonda came to the idea of the law of attraction late in life. And when, the ideas that you come to late in life can be very powerful because you can kind of convert to them. They seem to explain all the tragedy that is in your past and all the hopefulness that's in your future. And she felt it was an airtight philosophy. And so if you have an exception to this airtight philosophy, like the victims of a tsunami, well, you get rid of the exception. (laughs) And and I think it's the attempt just to to get rid of the exception rather than to acknowledge that uh, we don't really have it yet. The law of attraction may be a piece of the truth, and I think it is, but it's not the whole truth. And if one acknowledges that it's not the whole truth, everything becomes a lot more complex. You know, we were joking before about writing with bullet points or not writing with bullet points, but the more complex your reality is, the more difficult it is to write with bullet points and thus the smaller your audience would be. So there's a lot of reinforcement to be absolute about these things. And, um, you know, I'd like to sell a lot more books, but I can't be absolute about things that I don't feel absolute about. So in this situation where I, I have to write from the perspective of what I feel, and that won 't accommodate uh, the notion that we live under this one mental super law i 've had no verification of that
0: right I mean like search. we were talking about G- genius and diamond and holy guardian engine, all all those names for the specific um, capacity of the human psyche and in, in a way, there is a super law like if 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 you are in 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 relation with that if you have like connection with it but you know on a, on a superficial level without ever reaching that kind of insight it's it's yes. a it's a hollow it's a hollow word it's a hollow it's a, it's yes. a hollow insight so, it's a,
1: it's just an assertion yeah absolutely and that's what we do to all these universal laws you know uh, i mean i always say to people look if 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 one were to read uh, the sermon on the mount and really took it seriously it would change the entire world. It would certainly change a person's entire life, but we read these things and they don't penetrate. That too is one of the great maladies of human nature. We say they penetrate. We we think they penetrate, but they don't penetrate because if they did, we would know how to live, you know, and and yet these things become as words.
0: Right. Mitch, I think we got it. Thank Thank you very much to uh, talk to me.
1: I enjoyed this immensely. I really did. Your thank questions you. were so penetrating, and I felt this was a real exchange. Thank you. Thank you.
0: If you enjoyed this episode of Lateral Conversations uh, and you want to support my work in this podcast, you can do so by using the Patreon link or the donate button from PayPal, or you just can buy me a coffee. I will put the link below the episode. I want to thank everybody who already supports me. Very much appreciated. Uh, I hope you tune in next time. All the best to you guys. Have a good one.